as Michael said, we're reading from Genesis chapter 14 and I'm going to be reading the whole chapter. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, Kedalomar king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shemabar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Belar, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they had been subject to Catalomar, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Catalomar and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Raphaites in Ashtaroth Kanarim, the Zazuts in Ham, the Emites in Shivei Kiriaphrim and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran, near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Belar, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedalomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aniah, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. 
He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedaloamah and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavai, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aenea, Eshkol and Mamre. Let them have their share. Now I'm reading from the New Testament, from Hebrews chapter 6, from verse 17. Because God wanted to make sure the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then, also, King of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, 
resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. That's good. Well, it really is a great joy and pleasure for Geetra and I to be here. I think um, Colin and Sharon, when they rocked up um, from this place called Manchester, uh, when was that, mate? 13 years ago, they were an amazing gift and blessing to us. I could not understand a word he said back then, much better now. But uh, but what an amazing gift of God's grace, not just to all of us here, this family are, but also to the mission of the gospel in this whole area. So um, very thankful for them, great to be here. Keep praying for them and, and encouraging them. But why don't we just pray uh, before we uh, tuck into God's word here. Merciful Heavenly Father, we do just give thanks uh, for your word. Your word is life. You teach us your word has been breathed out to make us wise for salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. So please will you give each of us uh, that correction and and repentance and faith this morning that we all leave here wiser for salvation by faith in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever had made a choice that on the surface looked good but later you discovered had undesirable consequences? Um, a story comes to mind when I was a fourth-year med student at Flinders. We'd organised an inter-year first one footy game out there on the Oval. And um, it was a great day. My uncle and aunt at that time, they owned a chicken shop and they kindly provided very cheaply like massive styrofoam containers of chicken like cut up. And so it was a cold day. We played footy. We were so hungry we ate. There was so much left over though. It was Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock. We thought uh, we'll just stick it in the lecture theatre for Monday. So we did, and uh, we, we hoed in at lunchtime, and it was still warm, it was amazing, it was beautiful, uh, and of course, by Monday night, we were all chucking our guts up, um, because um, you leave anything warm lying around, and uh, well, things grow in it, and you get food poisoning, and it was, it was hilarious, the whole class just wiped out, um, lecture was cancelled on Tuesday, but um, you know, of course, the irony is we were all fourth-year med students. Uh, you think you should have known better, hey? Now, life is like that. Life is like this as a Christian as well. You'd think, oh, man, I should have known better. I should have seen that coming. You know, um, why didn't I see that coming? Um, and let's face it, life is like that. But thank goodness for Jesus. Thank goodness for God's grace 
um, and that we are saved not by our resumes, but by the resume of Jesus and um, his sinless faithfulness and atoning work on the cross. But I, I, I tell that story, has you ever made a choice that on the surface it looked good, but later you came to regret, you know, whether it was a food poisoning choice or whatever. We're making choices all the time, aren't we? You know, what we'll eat, uh, where we will live, who we'll marry, what school to send the kids to, which church to join, big and small. We're making choices every day uh, and reaping all sorts of consequences from those choices. That we live in a world where sin is real, people and situations often aren't as they seem. It just means that working out what are the wise, uh, the good and the life-promoting choices, God-honouring choices, that can be really hard and really quite confusing at the time. It's sort of like trying to see around a corner sometimes. Now, I begin like that because we pick up the story of Abraham and Lot. We're sort of halfway through it, aren't we? Chapter 14. And you can feel for Lot, Abram's nephew. I mean, up until uh, chapter 13, Lot had super glued his life and fortune to Abram. And now chapter 14, we find he's been carried off as booty of some victorious king in a, in a, in a sort of big political Middle East thing going on. Now, for those who weren't here last week, just a quick bit of the backstory. Abram's nephew, Lot, he'd travelled with Abram the 1,200 kilometres from Haran, uh, where God had made those promises back in chapter 12, uh, to this land, this promised land that God said he was going to give Abram. Uh, for months, Lot's tented and contiki toured with Abram through the land, and, and again, like with Abram, calling on the name of the Lord, building altars, calling on the name of the Lord. When famine had hit, Lot had to stuck with Abram. And thought, huh, life looks better down in Egypt. Let's go down there. So they do. And after a series of um, uh, what I like to think of Rowan Atkinson, goofy and godless choices by Abram, um, that put uh, not only Abram's wife at risk, and uh, who wants a husband like Abram, and, um, but also God's promises at risk. Because, of course, a key heart of God's promises was uh, he was going to make him into a great nation. Uh, and through the nation bring blessing to all nations, um, you need a wife to do that. Um, so hard. it's pretty hard if the wife is in with Pharaoh. So anyway, God, he rescues, he intercedes and saves Sarah back, but also saves Abram, Lot and everyone with him back into the promised land. And so you get to the beginning of chapter 13 and we're told that they're back to where they were at the beginning, back in the land. And um, not more than that, God has ordained that uh, moved Pharaoh's heart to give Abram and Lot heaps and heaps of stuff, heaps of material wealth. So they arrive back um, really, really wealthy. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I tend to think often that if I just had some more money, that would just fix up a whole lot of problems. And we tend to think that, don't we, in life? You know, money's the answer to a lot of stuff. If I just had more money, you know, I'd be happier. Um, we, we think like that. I think it was Francis Bacon who said that the surface above gold mines is generally very barren. You see, when money's involved and riches are to be had, sometimes it can be like sewage seeping into a water supply and easily it, it can, you know, uh, relationships in our life and family, it can become toxic pretty quickly. You see, um, so it was actually only this year, uh, one of my mates, a neighbour, he... Um, uh, his, his mum died, the last of his parents. Um, his sister comes over from interstate to sort out the house and the estate and 
and um, and there's disagreement over stuff and money, uh, and now she's gone back and they they aren't talking, may never talk again. Beginning chapter thirteen, quarrelling has broken out between Lot's herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen. Not enough resources to go around for everyone, um, and so in order to preserve the relationship with Lot, Abram he's magnanimously said, mate, I'll go second. He said, you take the first pick, have a look, whatever you want. You go that way, I'll go that way. You go that way, I'll go that way. Whatever you want, it's yours. Um, what's important here is that we keep the peace. We keep the peace. And it's subversive to the culture of the day, of course, because Abram chooses peace over, uh, you know, quite rightly, because the, old, or the older should have gone first, like grabbing hold of prosperity for himself. But it seems that possibly Abram's learned his lesson back from chapter 13 at 12, um, that he should trust God's promises. Trust God's promises. And the hints that Abram's learned his lesson is that the chapter 13, chapter 13, it begins and ends with Abram building an altar and calling on the name of the Lord and worshipping the Lord. And so everything that happens between that is an expression of Abram's attempt to trust in God's promises, to wait in God's promises. But back to Lot, um, given that God's promised blessing was tied up with Abram alone, this, of course, is one offer that a young um, uh, Lot um, should have just said, no, no way, no, nah, I'm sticking with you. God's made the promises to you. Um, blessing comes through you. I'm sticking with you. But seeing that the whole plain of the Jordan was lush like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt they'd just left, he couldn't resist, could not resist what was there right in front of his eyes. And, of course, when we're living by sight, rather than trusting and obeying the goodness of God's word. It's, it can be so hard to say no and to see the consequences of our decisions, especially given that most of our lives are fast-paced and we're all, you know, spinning lots of plates and juggling balls and this and that. And, you know, um, so anyway, Lot, he goes, he pitches his tents near Sodom, but all was not as it appeared. Because there's a couple little clues here, aren't there? Verse 13 of chapter 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And we're also told that that was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> so it brings us to the start of chapter 14, our passage. And hopefully by now we're in the story. We're in the story. Uh, four R's, the first R is rescue. Rescue, God's rescue of Lot through Abram. Um, now, can I just say, well done, all those names of those kings, amazing, well done. I'm just going to call them four kings and five kings, okay? So um, go with me. Uh, anyway, we just heard, it's the very next chapter, and it's, it's like um, living in the West Bank at the moment where things are not good. Pray for what God's, what's going on over there. Uh, but Lot becomes caught up almost by accident in an international conflict between four overlord kings and five local Canaanite kings who've decided that they've had enough. They've, they've been under the thumb for 12 years. Enough is enough. Come on, let's get together and kick off the yoke of, of this guy, Chedorlaomer. And so they try to. Um, and poor Lot, he's a victim. He's in the middle of all this. I mean, how could do this? How, how could God do this to poor, poor Lot? And sometimes life is like that. Things change around us. I mean, COVID, we've we got no control. We've we, we just been told. You know, uh, I've just been away. We've got some mates from Melbourne on a conference. Um, and, and, and they're like in post-traumatic stress, like 100 days of lockdown. And whenever there's a, something that comes out announcement, they sort of literally like, you know, not again. Um, 
But see, how easy we, when we get caught behaving badly, um, you know, our decisions, that we can quickly point the finger at our parents or our upbringing or schooling or, you know, it was just, I'm a victim here, come on. And Scripture teaches us that Lot is experiencing the consequences of choosing to live by sight rather than live by trusting in the promises of God. Because it was Lot who chose to live apart from Abram. Lot chose to pursue what he thought would offer more material gain and prosperity for his life. And so he's experiencing the consequences of choosing to part ways from God's agent of blessing here, Abram. Which is why this is so sad when people that we know, and I'm sure we probably do, who have started off strong, you know, um, people we care for and they've chosen paths contrary to Christ and his word. That, that they've, that they've, wandered, they've wandered. And so we, we hear in verses 11 and 12, uh, the rebellion of the five local kings, that it's squashed and the four overlord kings, they seize all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, and he's carried off. And, and this all happened to Lot because, we're told, he was living in Sodom. Now, here's a thing that you might not have picked up. Back in chapter 13, verse 12, we're told that Lot, when he left Abram, he pitched his tent near Sodom. Now Lot's living in Sodom. This movement of living near living in Sodom, it portrays a man who's become more immersed in the city, more involved with its people. He's moved further away from Abraham and his promises. Lot hasn't moved to Sodom to evangelise them. You know, we, as Christians, we don't want to be monastic. We need to live among the people. We want to take the good news of Jesus too. Lot hasn't moved to Sodom to evangelise them though. He's moved there, attracted by the material wealth and what he thinks are the opportunities on offer to him. And on the one hand, people need to hear the good news, but on the other hand, being them with them, we need to be careful that we don't become like them. The Bible teaches that we become like the people we hang out with. Um, it's so easy. You know, you hang out with someone who swears a lot, you're probably going to start swearing or gossip a lot. You're going to start gossiping. Um, and so as we heard in Genesis chapter 14, verse 13, some escaped the onslaught and, 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 and got back to Abram and said, mate, mate, Abram, your nephew who's been captured in that big thing that's happened down there on the Shinar Plain. And of course, Abram, well, tough luck. I mean, he, he made the dumb choice. I mean, let him suck it up and suffer the consequences. I mean, but he doesn't actually, does he? He immediately calls out 300 of his own trained men born in his household and he goes off in pursuit as far as Dan, that's 200 kilometres away, at his own cost. And we're told that during the night Abram divides his men up um, and he attacked them and he routed them and pursued them. That's amazing, four kings and their armies. The, Abram and his three, what an amazing military leader. I mean, you've got ultimate SAS going on here. This is phenomenal. Whoa! He's rooted the four kings and, all, and their whole army. And not only, I mean, they, they run off, they leave behind all the people and the possessions. And so they carry the whole lot back. Not just lot. They carry the whole lot back. I mean, wow. 
But of course, it's not about his military prowess, is it? No, here is a man whose seed of faith in his God is useful, powerful and saving, not just to, to himself and to his nephew, but to others. You see, his faith, it's small, but because it's in the Lord God Almighty, who is mighty to save, as the cross teaches us, it's faith in this God who went to the cross for us, mighty to save sinful human beings from the most desperate and impossible situations. As we read in 1 Samuel 14, 6, nothing can hinder the Lord God from saving, whether by many or by few. Nothing can hinder the Lord God from saving those he um, wants to save. And so at great cost and personal risk to himself, Abram covers all the costs to, to chase after Lot and rescue him and others get caught up in this saving act. It's a beautiful picture and a pattern of how God loves to save. A picture and a pattern of, of, of pleasing faith, God-pleasing faith, that of course will be perfectly fulfilled by Abram's offspring, the greater Saviour, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And it's true, isn't it? And so what does it mean for us to be Christian and to be godlike here? Well, I think in a world that's tainted by sin and where evil is real, where there is war and viruses and, and there's oppression, godlike faith, I think it will always have a redeeming edge. It will, all, it will be a faith that it's never too busy to stop. This morning... I was under the pump, one of the reasons I was a bit late, sorry Colin. Um, I went over to get more milk um, and got chatting with the lady over there. It just so happens like me, she is a more sparkly morning person. She's up at 4.30 to open the servo, got the milk and she said, oh yeah, no, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just actually finishing off a talk about Jesus, you know. And she said, oh, you know, um, and she started asking questions. And, and I'm in a rush here, come on, I'm on the clock. And uh, I thought, far out, what do I do? A bit conflicted. Uh, but I stopped and I got into it. And then, you know, have you ever read a gospel biography of Jesus yourself? No, no. I said, oh, it's too early in the morning to, for this religious conversation stuff. <laughs> but I, anyway, she so knew who I was, knew I was, um, you know, uh, doing what I was doing. And, uh, but, you know, I left. I'll go back tomorrow morning and take her a gospel biography. But redeeming. God-like faith, it's always going to have a redeeming edge, never too busy to stop. It's going to be always wanting to forgive debts, to cover over debts, isn't it? To cover the cost of bringing the lost home, uh, of partnering, I think, with good mission organisations like CMS, AFES, like the Trinity Network, who wants to plant more churches, and, and you know, organisations like Bush Church Aid. Partnering, because it's costly, if we're going to actually bring the lost home. But as we move on, we move on to um, what I call recognition. So from rescue to recognition, uh, verses 17 to 20. We, we see um, this pattern of Abram's interaction with Melchizedek, again, expressing his faith. Um, mysterious Melchizedek, who only appears here in the Old Testament. You know, if you blink or turn you, you know, your head, he's, he's on and off the stage before you know it. And then we read that then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, 
Blessed be God, most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now we heard Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which means king of peace, the future city of Jerusalem. And, of course, if you're going to um, die and end up in heaven, if you're going to know the, the peace of God, this can only happen if somehow we can turn up completely righteous before God's throne, blameless. And for that to happen, we need a king and a priest like Melchizedek. And how does this priest king come? He comes with hands full of refreshment and a mouth full of praise for Abram and his God. He recognised that it was Abram's God who had actually given him the victory, that it was Abram's God who had actually uh, given his enemies into his hands. But I don't know about you, but some, some of our best yeses uh, for God uh, and for his glory, uh, a best yes can only be a really great yes if it's accompanied by a really definitive and strong no. No to worldliness, no to wickedness, no to living by sight. And so enter the king of Sodom. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Now, here's another pagan king like Melchizedek, but very different to Melchizedek. You see, there's no acknowledgement uh, of Abram's victory, no recognition of Abram's God, no thanks for Abram for saving him. I mean, that's the irony. <laughs> He's just been saved by Abram. And he says, hey, mate, well, look, you know, just if you give me this stuff, you can take the rest. And, you know, of course, at this point, the king of Sodom is a little bit like Lot. He comes out to Abram and all he can see is the booty. That's all he could see. What's in it for me? I wonder what I could get out of this. And so for the second time in two chapters, we meet someone who's living by sight rather than by faith in the promises of God. And of course, when we are living by sight, it, how, easy, how quickly we can become blind and prayerless to be arming to, to sense and to see God and what he might be wanting or what he's doing. So how does a person of faith respond to sort of the temptation and, you know, getting into deals like this, or like Melchizedek, so concerned is Abram that God alone should receive all the glory and honour for his deliverance. So Abram refuses to take anything from the king. He says, look, mate, thanks, but I'm not even going to take a hair off your head, a thread off your clothes or a strap of your sandals, no, nothing. Nothing. I'm going to accept Nothing so that you will never be able to say that I made Abram rich. And here is Abram doing what Lot didn't do, rejecting the riches of this world for God's promised riches according to his word. No, no, I'm going to wait on God's word. I'm going to wait on God's promises. I'm going to wait for God to do what he's promised to do, even though I just cannot see around the corner, even though it's, it just sounds ridiculous and impossible. My wife's barren. There's people living in the land. I don't know how God, I'm just going to wait on God to do what he's promised. God's got an agenda for my life. I'm going to trust that God will deliver. Of course, it was Jesus who, when tempted with power and riches by Satan, replied, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And again, from Titus 2, Paul writing to a young, young trainee, probably had more hair than Colin, um, but he's writing to them in a you know, church in Crete that's a bit 
bit raucous, gone off the rails. He writes this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now friends, Abram had so little of God's revelation to work with, yet he was able to trust God's word of promise. How much more revelation do we have? We've got the whole canon of scripture. And so blessed are those who see with their ears and keep hearing and heeding God's word, trusting in his promises for our life. He doesn't just accept nothing from the king of Sodom, but he also gives nothing to him. You know, um, uh, I'd just become a, a newly minted Christian back in 1992. Uh, in 94, that was when Trinity uh, bought the land out the back, an old disused um, um, service station site. And you think, why has it taken the city 27 years to develop it? It's not just because they're Anglican and all things that Anglicans do are really slow. Because uh, it's, you know, is that right, Ben? <laughs> no? Okay. But, um, and it's not like they haven't had a whole raft of potential suitors approach them with all sorts of amazing deals, like pretty glossy book cover deals. But as they got into it and they thought, ah, oh, no, 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 this is not a good business deal to get into here. Um, and so trying to, uh, with courage and wisdom, knowing that they only ever wanted one thing out of this development, that it should help the gospel go out. It should help the gospel go out. And so now they're finally in a deal that looks like possibly it could fund mission and evangelism and church planning, or help, <laughs> I should say, for like the next hundred years. See, how different Abram's response to the king of Salem, Melchizedek, the end there of verse 20, that Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything and nothing to the king of Sodom. Of course, by giving 10% of his spoils to Melchizedek, Abram is recognising the king of Salem's superiority, his greatness. And in a story filled with kings, Abram bows only to this mysterious Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God, most high. And, of course, we finish where the New Testament finishes. That's why I had uh, part um, at the heart of Hebrews. Hebrews is just all about is, is why is, 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 is Jesus the priest we need, uh, really? He's the better priest, the better sacrifice. Uh, why is that? And um, especially chapters 7 to 10. And Melchizedek just keeps getting mentioned right through chapters 5 through to chapters 10. Even though he appeared just for a moment on stage. And so just we want to finish really looking at Jesus, basking in his beauty and glory, uh, the good king and priest he is for us. According to our, our, our reading from, from Hebrews, this Canaanite king of priests, and he's priest of God most high. Notice though that Jesus isn't patterned after Melchizedek. We're told that actually Melchizedek was made resembling Jesus, the son of God, which is just does your head in. Was this actually a pre-incarnate Jesus turning up as Melchizedek? Was it like, just something for you to think about, the eternal Christ? 
2,000 years after Abraham Melchizedek, like I connect the dots picture, the writer to Hebrews, he's keen for a struggling and persecuted bunch of Christians. Uh, they're being tempted to toss the towel in because it's hard, it's sucky, um, you know, being a Christian in, in their world. Uh, just say, look, the best thing I can give you is just to know the excellence of Jesus more. Help you to see the beauty of Jesus more, the, the excellence and the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus. And that's the best way we can always pastor ourselves and pastor our fellow traveller, is just to, to take them to Jesus um, of the Bible and to show them Jesus. And so verse 2, if you want to flick to Hebrews 7 in your Bibles, we'll finish off here. Um, verse 2 of chapter 7. We're told uh, first about Melchizedek's name, uh, king of righteousness, king of peace. Uh, and of course, that's exactly who Jesus is. We need the righteousness of Christ by faith if we were to actually die and have any hope of standing before um, Christ's throne and hearing those beautiful worlds, welcome, welcome, faithful child, come in. Two things about Jesus that the writer of Hebrews is wanting to show us here based on some stuff from Melchizedek. The first is that Jesus is his unending permanence. He's permanent. His priesthood is is unending. It's permanent. It's forever. Um, And so just like Melchizedek, he was without father or mother or genealogy, uh, without beginning of days nor end of life, uh, resembling the Son of God. Um, so, So this is the nature of Jesus' priesthood. It's without beginning and without end. Everyone in the Bible, uh, from beginning, uh, they get a genealogy, a family tree, like you and me, we've got parents. Uh, of course, years later, hundreds of years later, the Levitical priesthood would come along. You had to be a Levite. You had to be born in the line of Aaron if you're going to be part of that priesthood. Uh, this is a completely different priesthood. Melchizedek's priesthood was before that priesthood. Um, and no beginning, no end, uh, which is why the writer to Hebrews is likening Jesus' priesthood to Melchizedek because it's, it's, it's unending, it's permanent. And uh, we know that because of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead, that Jesus' priesthood is a permanent, it's a living priesthood. And so uh, we read a bit later in Hebrews 7, verses 23 to 25, There have been many of those human Levitical priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And friends, without Jesus as your go-between, without Jesus as your mediator... Uh, you are without hope completely. You've got no hope of being with God, of being in heaven when you die. It is only by faith in this king and this priest that anyone will enter and be received and welcomed into heaven. But of course, not just permanent, but Jesus' priesthood and his priestly work is, is perfection. It's perfection. It's unblemished perfection it's perfect in the sense that all intercession and atonement for your sin and mine it's finished it's completed past present and future it is done 
It's why the writer to the Hebrews compares the efficiency of the the sacrifices offered by human priests with Jesus' once-for-all sacrificial death on the cross. And so by the time you get to chapter 10, this is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I wonder when you walk in here, you know, of a Sunday morning, you know, you look at someone like Colin and you just think, oh, perfection. I'm not sure that's what Sharon thinks when she wakes up in the morning. Or, um, you look at your spouse and you just think, actually, perfection. Now, of course, our old tents are fading away, (laughs) but that's what we're being told here. By faith, Jesus has already made you and those of us here perfect forever. Perfect. Perfection. Forever holy. And so, as the writer to the Hebrews concludes, where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. Beautiful, isn't it? Wow. Wow. When I stuff up, when I make those foolish, you know, food poisoning equivalent choices as a Christian, or worse, when I just completely go against God's word, for all who turn to Christ, come to him and confess their sin, there is always forgiveness. Forgiveness. And all we've got to do is take a leaf out of Abram's book, is believe this word of promise. It really is like this. And of course, to believe a promise is to live by it. It's to act on it. It's to say no to this, yes to this, turn away from that, turn to this. Isn't it? You can't say that you're really trusting in God's promises is if you're carrying on over here knowing that it's contrary to God's word. No, no. Living by faith Being holy is living out that holiness. It's striving towards the perfection that we already are by faith in Jesus Christ. And so for those of us here who have already come to Jesus, I don't know know whether you're in a season of famine or feasting or just feeling overrun by failure. I, I don't know what's going on in your life. But I'm pretty confident there's probably a whole mix of these seasons going on in our lives because you live in the same world that I do. (laughs) But hear the word of promise. Keep coming to Jesus. Keep confessing your sin. And keep knowing that you can never, ever, ever exhaust that forgiveness for those who believe. And so may I finish with these words of encouragement, uh, as, as the writer of the Hebrews does. And so, dear friends, dear brothers and sisters, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching.